2: Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Things can seem a bit gloomy at the moment, and no one is better suited to explaining why than our guest this week, the conservative writer and self-proclaimed doommonger Ed West. In an eclectic career that has spanned lad mags, religious publications, and a very popular personal substack, Ed has become one of the most entertaining, thought-provoking writers on the British right. And it was a pleasure to sit down and shoot the breeze with him for this week's episode. Ed, welcome to the CapEx Podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Just in case any of our listeners don't know who you are, who are you and what do you do?
3: Um, my name's Ed West. I write the Substack Wrong Side of History. Before that, I worked at various places, Unheard. I wrote The Spectator, The Telegraph. And before that, I was at various other publications, going back to the noughties, um... And now I sort of write uh, doom-mongering stuff about how everything's in decline. Although, you know, I think I've improved right the last few years. Yeah, we can come
2: on to some of your prophecies. Um, It's 10 years since one of your books, The Diversity Illusion, came out. So we'll we'll talk about that in a bit. I think you at one point in your last book, you mentioned you're the only person to have simultaneously worked for Nuts and the Catholic Herald. So you've been plowing a fairly um, sort of individual furrow.
3: Yeah, the whole range of the media. It's funny because when I started writing, so it was just the turn of the century, really, the kind of culture was much more anarchic, sort of more permissive. I mean, yeah, it definitely was more permissive, more tolerant in some ways, kind of less serious than it has now. And, you know, over 20 years, it's basically become almost kind of more Victorian in certain ways. Most of the comedy which was produced around the the century would be completely outrageous now than the comedy from even 50 or 60 years ago, unless it was explicitly racist. So, you know, it's interesting to actually see a change in society, which is notable in that time.
2: Yeah. What do you see as the inflection point there? Is there a point where you personally thought, ooh, things starting to turn a bit?
3: I do remember there was that case when I didn't remember. It was quite an obscure point. There was um, some Americans had landed something on the moon. It was some sort of like Mars rover or something. And the, the guy in charge of it was wearing a T-shirt and it had sort of naked women on it. It immediately became one of those kind of... Early sort of you know social media cancellation things and sort of pitted on one side. It seemed like a left and right thing, but it, you know, part of me thought, well, you know, like forty years ago, that wouldn't have been appropriate for a man to turn up wearing a t-shirt with naked breasts. So why is the right instinctively sort of on his side? And it sort of occurred to me that this kind of new moral framework has kind of taken over where there's been an absence of any sort of moral authority, you know, from the sixties and seventies onwards, with the decline of Christianity and the old order. this kind of new moral orders has emerged, and, and this is sort of what we're uh, seen now. I just happen to think it's quite an unstable and dysfunctional moral, order in many ways it hasn't really. It seems to me to be one that doesn't often come from kind of first principles. Uh, a good example
2: of this is how during COVID you could quite easily have imagined mask wearing becoming a right wing thing rather yeah. than a left wing. If, say, Donald Trump had been all about masks. I mean, it sort of
3: started out that way. I mean, when, when COVID came along and it was, there was loads of articles about saying, you know, like racism is a bigger problem, it's only the flu and the, the sort of prestige center-left American press, all sorts of, and the authorities in New York organized They we're going to go down to Chinatown, and in Florence, I think it was one of the sort of center-left Italian towns they had, we're going to have a hug a Chinese day. And that was on the same day where Taiwan shut down all its flights from mainland China, because they thought, this is really bad. So it that, at the time, it was only a few sort of paranoid, doom-mongering right-wingers who thought this was going to be quite bad, including myself. And then it completely changed. And then it was sort of like, oh, you know, if you don't wear a mask. And in fact, I think the official advice actually changed and it sort of changed on the left-right thing. So then all of a sudden it was right-wingers who were desperate to go out and get the disease. I mean, even with the vaccine thing, probably the conspiracy theory I most believe about COVID is I think the idea that they knew about the vaccine was available. They could have announced it before the election. That's the kind of lesser conspiracies. And that would have possibly seen Trump win. In that case, I could easily see the Democrats saying no, we're not going to take the vaccine. Instead, of the Republicans, and it became a thing. And, you know, literally thousands of people died because of, I think there were like six radio hosts in America who were sort of anti vaxx and died of COVID. I mean, at least they, they weren't lying. I mean, it's what uh, anthropologists call a credibility display, you know.
2: Your last book was published in 2020, start of 2020. I know this because we we were going to do an event at the time and like so much other stuff, it got covid off. Try not to oversimplify, but your basic argument is that conservatives may win elections, but they've been losing the cultural battle for many years. I mean, first, what do we mean when we talk about conservatism? Because it strikes me now, it's such a broad church. We have, you know, your Thatcherites, your Trussonomics fans, your national conservatives, which will come on. Where do you situate yourself?
3: I, I mean, I would probably just call myself a mainstream conservative in that I don't really have any... I'm not a libertarian, although there are more libertarians younger. And like a lot of people, i become less libertarian as I get older. I wouldn't call myself a post-liberal or any of these other kind of uh, attachments. I mean, there is a difference between the conservatism and the right. So the right is basically anything that's not credibly left. So that includes libertarians and even things like Christian socialists in some ways. Because, you know, the left is a set of beliefs so you have to believe in, basically. Yeah. So things like... Um, firstly, you have to be anti-racism. You have to completely be pro-gay rights. You probably have to be pretty much pro-choice in the abortion issue because women's right to sort of, um, autonomy in every way is sacred. And if you don't sign up to all those things, you're basically not on the left. You're not on the orthodox left. And therefore, the right is a sort of coalition of people who are not on the orthodox left. I mean, there are studies of people's opinions and people's values and, and people who you know, vote Republican and Democrat and in Britain as well, I think that the same study was done. And it showed a far wider variety of views on the right.
2: I generally find, I mean, not just because of social media, the most it's a bit of a cliche, but the most vicious arguments are those internecine ones among yes, people sir. on the broad right. We've got in, well, literally opposite where we're recording this podcast, there's a big conference in the middle of May on national conservatism. Um, which you're one of the speakers at, and there's a real kind of star-studded guest list. You know, you've got like Michael Gove and Jacob Rees-Mogg and loads of well-known writers and thinkers and so on. Is national conservatism really that kind of novel a movement? How would you define it?
3: I mean, most of the speakers are are just straight down the line conservatives. I think the national thing is the sort of polar axis of politics has definitely moved from you know economic issues and even social issues towards the sort of national versus international is the big kind of dividing line. David Goodhart made a great pithy way of analysing it. The conservative parties in basically all Western states are to some extent the sort of anti, I would say anti-globalisation because I would say, you know, I'm pro-globalisation and I'm, and I would even say I'm pro-consopolitan. But there is a difference in that and a kind of completely universalist idea where, you know, your nation state is not more important than other nation states. So the national thing, I'm, I mean, I'm not the organiser. That is one way to differentiate us. You know, there, are, there might be people who broadly agree on other issues, but this is, you know, for people who believe in the nation state is sort of the primary organisation.
2: Yeah, and it strikes me as, it's also, like you said, if the right defines itself against the left, then the kind of NatCon movement perhaps defines itself against a slightly nebular global elite. Yeah. Do you think there's a risk, well, see so whether you agree or not, but there's a risk that this sometimes can tip over into kind of world economic forum conspiracy theorizing.
3: Yeah. I mean I think the organizers of this event and you know the guy behind it is um, they're very good at police. And the thing is you know the right has to police its borders in a stronger way because ultimately I think we have more kind of like dangerous and crazy people at the very fringes. And when you talk about preserving the sort of our national identity there's obviously two dangers there is a kind of like a very fringe very strongly sort of racist fringe that you have to sort of be careful of there is also the kind of the cranky like you know global economic world economic forum i mean i have to say i'm um, yeah i'm kind of a more vague about those conspiracies because i kind of sort of slightly switch off you know because as i say like, globalization obviously i mean the history of improvement and the history of civilization is the history of globalization when we talk about things like the collapse of the roman empire and, and the dark ages that was deglobalization when certain writers you know, respond, to or, you know, respond to COVID think, oh, you know, we're going to go back to globalization, I think. The reality of that is not going to be very nice. But you know, it does have winners and losers. I also strongly believe that social capital is a massive factor in how pleasant society is to live in. Even your community, your neighborhood, how much people trust each other, how much they have a sort of shared confidence in the system has a huge effect, even if the effect might be slow to actually... Transpire. But if you, go to any, you know, if you compare societies where there is high social capital and one where there is actually no sense of national identity, there's a huge difference in you know, how pleasant they are to live in. But I mean, to what extent? I think the big beef people maybe have
2: with what some people call communitarianism, others just call it national conservatism, I mean, it's, it's not that those things aren't good, it's that we don't want them sort of imposed by government fiat. I mean, to right. what extent do you think politicians can actually ferment those conditions?
3: There are things the government can do. And in a sense, so, you know, at the moment, for example, under this Conservative government and under the last few governments, you know, we've allowed you know, public money to be spent on groups and campaigns that are basically anti-British. And you know, we, we can say, well, you know, public institutions should be patriotic. Obviously, there are economic issues and those are probably more complicated about whether you, know, you want to have protection for manufacturing and stuff. I'm sort of on the fence on that because I'm not an economist and I don't know. I like a lot of these issues, you know, a lot of communitarian ideas I, I sort of support in theory, but I don't know whether they, in practice, are always going to work. The downsides of capitalism are its association with a kind of runaway progressivism. You know, I think the more sort of free market you have, the more there is a danger that you become like California in your politics as well as your society. You know, in economic liberty is, is a great thing, it? and it also is associated with, you know, higher trust in people down the years, so... Um, for that reason, I wouldn't really call myself a communitarian or a post-liberal, even though I'm sympathetic to the ideas.
2: I think there's sometimes slightly, a slightly artificial divide there between these sorts of camps right, yeah. on the right. I mean, I don't think it benefits anyone to try and replay the 80s. But if you look at someone like Thatcher, yeah. she embodied both of these things to a very high degree, very economically liberal, but also very traditionally moralistic in a way that very few politicians are are these days
3: i mean i think the argument about, on the social issue the argument about thatcher is that she did her rule led the way to a much more social liberal society in a way that we don't really like a lot of us i don't know how much that was really her or if that was just the inevitable effect of the 60s and how much she could have done about it you know she came from a, a very different society from the one we have now and that's not really there's not much the government could really Have done about that. I mean, I I feel like the more all these kind of debates about Thatcher's legacy go on, I think that's just kind of inevitably going to harm the right. I mean, there's not much I can do about that, but it's... um...
2: No, indeed. I mean, we're sitting in a building, an organization founded by her, so we're not going to disown her. But equally, I think it would probably be for the best if we didn't overdo it on the kind of Thatcherism cosplay.
3: Yeah, I mean the problem is that there's also just because of various social, economic forces, the the electorate which the Conservative Party realistically can win now is not the same as it was in the 80s. And you know, I know, like I get a bit bored with like politicians and and, um, commentators going about the Red Wall. I've just heard it so many times. Realistically, those kind of seats are probably a lot easier. Where I live in North London was Tory, you know, for a lot of the 80s, and that's just inconceivable now. It's just it's a lost cause. Generally, the sort of university educated upper middle class. Are going to be hard to get back. So talking about factories, kind of probably off-putting to potential voters. I
2: mean, I just want to come back to something you mentioned in your previous answer about you know groups who are are instinctively anti-British and so on. And it strikes me, why do you think it is that Britain, perhaps above pretty much all other Western nations, it's considered kind of cringe to be patriotic. It's generally sort of frowned upon.
3: I mean, it goes back. I mean, it goes definitely back to the time of the French Revolution. There was a small, you know, a liberal elite in Notting Hill thought it was sort of shameful. And Britain was always, you know, the beast, mainly amongst small, you know, religious groups, the Quakers and the Unitarians who, who had the sort of huge outside influence. France definitely has a similar thing. It has its kind of FPPE crowd who are just, and they, I think they also have kind of versions of Otto English who talk about how nothing is really French. And obviously America has its sort of self-hating culture. But I, I mean, I agree that Britain, particularly stuff like the flag, is, it's considered gauche, isn't it? It's one of those things that originally kind of came from a position of actual real arrogance because we thought you didn't go on about it because you just know it. And it's gone straight, so you don't go on about it because you actually generally do believe you're terrible.
2: I feel like this was a question that came up a lot sort of in the coalition years. People always used to talk about how English identity is nothing and you get the odd person pop up and say we'd need an English parliament or something. Yeah, But it's pretty much undiscussed. I mean, and the English flag is either associated
3: with football or the far right. It's even more low status than the Union Jack. When I was growing up, no one, ever, no one would even know what the English flag was. They wouldn't, if someone said draw the English flag, they would draw the Union Jack, and they wouldn't even recognize the St. George's Cross because it was only on churches. Euro 96 changed that, but I always find it strange when, you know, there is a certain, you know, like a midwit, kind of pro cosmopolitan position, which is someone who's like, oh, wow, great, I've been to university and I've picked up all these sort of approved opinions about how, you know, and I've left behind just sort of the idiots from school who voted Brexit say oh you know what is English culture I just find that such a sort of strange thing I mean you can go visit like Gloucester Cathedral or sort of read the works of Shakespeare or Milton and just read English history that goes back so so far into the Anglo-Saxon poems it's like of course there's a very strong sense of English culture you don't necessarily need to define it and a lot of it was basically subsumed in sort of imperial themes which are sort of now kind of a bit dodgy But of course there is an English and and a British culture. I just don't think we've necessarily needed to define it before.
2: No, I think it's slightly that. If you see things in this very postmodern way of all being about power relations and England was always by far the dominant part of the UK. Whereas the Celtic nations are seen as cool and trendy. And that one perhaps bright spot on your otherwise gloomy outlook that the union might not be doomed.
3: Yeah, I mean, I've been quite um, downbeat about the union. I mean, downbeat everything. But once a country starts, an idea of a country starts going into decline. You start seeing people at the fringes start falling away from it. So even things like Liverpudlian identity is much stronger, as opposed to being British, and then Welsh and Scottish identity becomes more pronounced. Because I, I don't think, on one level, it's just you know the you know I know people are going to say, oh, we're not the elite, but you know the cultural elites who are in control of media and education have been basically saying how terrible Britain is for or the British Empire or the British identity is except in its kind of multicultural sense, you know, is such a terrible thing and it is an abusive empire. It's natural that people are going to want to disassociate themselves from it because you know, I mean I think I think propaganda works and even sort of slowly chipping away at a sort of sense of identity, it's eventually gonna work. Enough people are gonna, you know, succumb to that. You'd be considered very cringe amongst the middle class to sort of say, I'm proud to be British, it's I mean, there's one that I think it was still talking about Nadine Dorries, and someone, someone's in the paper said she's openly patriotic. It's like, wow. I mean, that's
2: yeah. You mentioned the um, cultural elite there. I don't know if you've read Matt Goodwin's. I haven't book. really. I've got it, and I, I mean yeah. to,
3: but um, I mean, there's been
2: a hell of an argument, a kind of back and forth. He's written a lot of articles about the book as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah as a publicity uh, exercise, it's been unparalleled. <laughs> yeah, Do you buy into that basic idea that there is this powerful unelected cultural elite, or is it like? Some of the people he mentions to me, have almost zero influence on kind of the national conversation. Others, sort of Gary Lineker's and yeah. so on, maybe have more. I feel like lumping them all into one thing.
3: I haven't actually read the book. And to be honest, it sounds a bit like the book I'm supposed to be finishing. So
2: David Goodhart published his book the same week as your... Know,
3: uh, yeah, and would that at least came out the similar time? I mean, I think, yeah, of course, I can't, you know, talk about Matt's book, but the idea that The cultural elites in Britain aren't more progressive and liberal than the population at large. It's a strange thing for people to deny. That's so obviously true, and that can be found in every... Like, that can be found in survey after survey. And the idea that the government alone don't direct the country in its direction. Like, of course, I mean, like, the government is responsible for which way the, the country is going, ultimately. So no one else is to blame for that. Gary Lineker doesn't run the country. Human beings follow prestigious individuals. Gary Lineker sells, you know, crisps for a reason, right? People buy crisps because they see his face in it. Gary Lineker is a very prestigious figure, and it's, you know, if most of the prestigious figures in a society believe a certain thing, you can say those certain things are, are prestigious views, and they're the things that you should, you're supposed to say. My basic argument is, is that if you ever know about any famous person and their politics in secret versus their politics in public, they are always more right-wing and private, always. I've never heard of anyone who, like, conceals their liberalism for the sake of... But <laughs> it's obviously yeah. an advantage to be liberal in society, because that is the prestigious view. I mean, There might be others I don't know about who are secretly lefties. Keep it quiet. But yeah, that seems to be, I mean, I have to read Matt. I can never do what he does because he likes that controversy. He likes arguing with people. I mean, I couldn't bear it. It would be awful. But I think, you know, he thrives in it. And I think also, if you're in academia where the ratio of, you know, left to right is now so extreme, it's bizarre for people then to say, oh, well, you know, I mean, the academia is incredibly powerful. It's the successor to the church, basically. It sets the moral tone. I mean, I think it shouldn't. I don't think educated, intelligent people are necessarily very moral and don't really think things through very well in that sense. But I mean, it's overwhelmingly left of centre, academia. Even the Brexit vote, I think, I mean, I know Brexit is not a perfect test of left and right. You know, lots of conservatives were against it and it's it must be quite bad. But, you know, if, if you look at that as a basic test, you know, the number of people in academia who, who voted for it was very small. And And it would have been much more like, you know, basically like the staff rather than the academics, didn't you?
2: Yeah, you've just sort of departed from some of the other kind of people in the conservative movement in that you quite openly regret or perceive Brexit to have gone badly.
3: I support Leave. I worked for Owen Patterson, strangely, and I was writing speeches for him. But then, I mean, I'd always been Leave, -er, but I read so much about the EU at the time. Like, I just came, this is going to be so, such a pain in the backside to do this. The benefits we get are going to be so minimal compared to it and i just thought most of the arguments most of the things people said about the eu were actually would still have happened anyway things like all oh, the decimation in the fishing industry that would have happened anyway like not norway actually i mean it's just technology there were lots of other examples i read that on the day it's like well this is you know i think i actually on the day i tweeted you know i'm not actually vote for this well and then foolishly i was kind of talked into it by i think some other people and i thought well it's not going to happen anyway so at least i've said my bit And then I voted and then I saw it I thought, ah, it's going to be quite bad.
0: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite.
2: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash newsadfree.
1: That's Amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to Bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
2: Has anything sort of surprised you about the way it's gone either negatively or positively? Because we seem to Uh, just fuss a lot about like queues for passports. And that strikes me as one of the least important issues compared to like the ability to export or...
3: Yeah, I mean, there will obviously be... I mean, obviously the vaccine was the one, you know, noticeable huge benefit. Of course, there were going to be benefits that aren't immediately apparent. I mean, the queuing in passport thing is quite annoying, I have to say. If like we'd left the EU and like planning system had been over our houses for £50,000 cheaper and I still had to wait an hour every time I went on a city break, that'd be fine. I used to have an Irish passport when I was younger because my mum insisted I had one just in case in the 70s there was like a terrorist attack on the plane and then you'd be released. I could get an Irish passport, but I refused to get one because I think like, I don't think people should have Second passports, unless they absolutely have one, and I do think, like as a Leave supporter, I shouldn't now then try to. Okay, so you've taken
2: the principled decision to stand in queues for even longer.
3: Yeah, I know, which sounds really perverse. I mean, I have to say, like if like if Corbyn had won the election, I would have got an Irish passport just to to leave the country. Yeah, I probably I
2: probably would have considered leaving the country. He'd have loved that. Though, of all the countries you could have picked, like.
3: yeah, yeah, it'd be very popular in certain parts, wouldn't it? I didn't always tweet that because I think when people say, "I want to leave the country," firstly. No one cares. Secondly, they never do. And third, pretty much, like, good. And also, uh, you know, the big thing with Brexit was, if you look at those word ch- charts, word clouds, it's like all these things, like all these other issues, blah, blah, blah. And in the mid- middle, massive words, immigration. That was, it was about immigration. There would have been no referendum without immigration. It was about immigration. They so, made
2: it about immigration, even if the true believers from, like, the noughties yeah. weren't always banging on about... Nigel Farage wasn't.
3: No, no, of course, but they, you know, they would have got zero point four percent of the vote without immigration. But UKIP was a response to immigration, not necessarily even European immigration. That was the core point. As a result, the Tory Party, on top of these huge like costs and hassle, Brexit massively increased immigration. And every time this is, Oh know the other day, oh, British builders are getting now earning one hundred twenty thousand pounds, so we're going to have to import more. It's like literally the whole point of why. I mean, and this is the kind of principle of national conservatism. It's like yes, it's in the interests of. Employers to have a bigger wage pool, but it's actually in the interests of the British people to not, because I'd like people to get better paid. Yeah. I'd like the cheaper houses and more, weight, and you know, higher wages. And you know, obviously, I don't want inflation, so there are obviously trade-offs there. But ever since then, it's always like, oh, you know what? We're not going to pay them so. And, and with teachers, example, are sort of now being recruited mainly from Central Africa. There's, you know, the NHS obviously always has to, because that's completely mentally unsolvable the problem because the idea that having a state monopoly with suppresses wages is just beyond most people's understanding so which is always going to have to import people and now there's just a sort of general this comes across as well as a sort of general aging population where it sort of feels like that we're sort of running out of people of you know working age the inevitable result of which is whether or not you think immigration is good or bad which i think is a rather
2: facile way of putting it actually because immigration can mean all sorts of different things yeah. If your demographics are skewed that way, we're just going to have to continue with politicians promising to bring that migration down while the figures go up or maintain at the same level.
3: I mean, I don't think uh, politicians being honest in immigration is probably even possible. But I I would say, listen, they would just say, listen, we're going to bring it down hugely and we're going to bring it down except for certain conditions like highly skilled workers. Or I mean, I, I do think there should just be free movement between countries of a certain Average GDP, then I mean, that would just be the easiest thing to do, which would include most of the EU anyway, um, as well as like in you know, North America and much the Far East. I think that would be easier, but it's such a a betrayal of actually what it was all about. They slightly believe their own idea. I mean, that was another thing about the Brexit. It was kind of the two completely contradictory ideas there. There was like the global Britain one, which I reckon was like ten percent of Brexit voters believed in that, and then there was a sort of much more like the Hobbit Britain, which was like we want to live in the shire we want to slow down globalization and boris really wants to speed up globalization and make it some more hyper i think it's wrong to talk with singapore and thames because i don't think that was ever really and i think people misinterpret it it's boris
2: a shit died. analogy as well because singapore's like really statist
3: yeah so i think that is inevitably going to lead to you know that kind of difference between the two visions of britain i mean you wrote a book
2: 10 years ago called the diversity illusion and what is the kind of gist? It's basically that diversity has been—I think you used the word—sacral value of a certain group of people, and to question anything to do with it is seen as putting you on the other side of the
3: fence. It comes down to sort of a kind of moral reaction and abhorrence about the early 20th century, and like you know, nationalism led to such immense tragedy and murder and violence and evil. It became kind of basically there was such a sense of repulsion at the idea of in-groups and out-groups. That, that eventually fed to a, a sort of idea that, well, you know, diverse societies like you have in the United States, and Tony Blair was very obsessed with making Britain more like America. They're much more tolerant, more forward-thinking, more liberal. And my basic thinking was I was very influenced by David Goodhart's article when you know, he wrote this thing, Too Diverse and Prospect, about how Solidarity and diversity are sort of in conflict, and the more diversity you have, the less sort of trust there is. The the less people are willing to share resources, more unhappy people. Even even in you know levels of psychiatric problems are much higher in diverse communities.
2: That's not necessarily just a racial thing, though. As well, you say in your book that it could be people of the same ethnicity but who have completely different values.
3: There is also evidence that being having very unpopular opinions is very quite bad for your mental health. I mean, so I'm obviously I live in Harrogate, so I'm in the wrong area, obviously. You know, race is not always the issue, but race is, you know, a part of the issue and and race and religion and culture and just the general sense that if people around you in society are from completely different backgrounds, it's kind of harder to get a lot of the functions of society and government running smoothly. If you look at the history of liberalism, uh, which depends on trust, so emerged in Northwest Europe in very, very undiverse society, they had religious diversity, which is different amongst Christianity. So they had sort of political diversity in its early stage. So you had groups from the Quakers to you know the um, Methodists and Nankins. but that was a sort of different type of diversity. While in contrast, the great cosmopolitan empires were always very restricted in what they could do, because every time there's any kind of democracy, it kind of sort of crumbled, and there was always the danger of communitarian rights. And, and I just you know, so my argument was: that if you look at the evidence, actually, diversity is a bit of a weakness beyond a certain small level. 10 years on, the book is obviously uh, probably even more out of date because the changes have sort of accelerated since then under a conservative government. There are two sort of strands pushing this. There is a sort of the idealized idea of diversity and there is also economic pressure because obviously globalization, a globalized workforce is obviously overall a good thing for the economy. So there's very, very strong pressure to maintain it.
2: Yeah. I mean, it strikes me, I think you said it's one of those things that it's neither inherently good or bad. It's sort of good and depends. It's a question of degree. And also, like I was saying before, when I thought is immigration good or bad, you can't infer much from the
3: question. I think there's a lot of sort of hypocrisy in these kind of areas. If someone said, "Oh, the area you're living in is sort of 40% immigrants," no one would just say, "Okay, and I move there." You would first find out like what does that mean? Because you you're talking about the whole variety of human. You know, is how selective is that immigration being exactly? You know, what community is he talking about. So no one actually treats immigrants as one big group. That is racist in its own way. The classic example is you look at the, the situation of Islam and immigration in France and Britain versus the United States. In the United States, Muslims are very much more liberal, much wealthier, much more integrated, blah, blah, in every way, much more, especially than France, which is the kind of opposite case. And they're all much more selective immigration. They tend to be from sort of the middle class of Iran and Pakistan and stuff. And to me, that seems like that's obviously in America's interest for their society it might not be in the interest of the countries where we're losing the middle class
2: yeah, yeah that is another one that paul collier has done a book about
3: yeah i mean exodus is very good i mean paul collier is also very interesting in the fact that people very underestimate the number of people who potentially will leave and immigration begets more immigration because you create anchors and beachheads the more people move to an area the more of their relatives are going to more like to move there and the numbers of potentially people moving i mean i'm sure i've used the argument about stripping the, the developing world but I feel like also, if I think of a conservative making that argument, it's kind of disingenuous because, I mean, when it comes down to it, I think, mm, okay, that's bad, but that's not the reason I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm against it. And I, I become wary of using all these kind of, this is what I care about because I'm such a liberal person when everyone thinks oh, that's not really it. So.
2: Well, that was going to be one of my other questions is, do you think that it certainly strikes me that sometimes some conservatives behave as if they want to be accepted at a certain kind of dinner party?
3: Yeah, of course. I mean, I'd like to be accepted.
2: Cool people are generally like more left wingers, As yeah, you say I mean, in the
3: 2020 book, yeah, it's just... you know, it's very rarely considered fashionable to be on the right. There are basically psychological reasons why, you know, the art is more left-of-centre. You'll always get that sort of bias towards the more open-minded and, and coolest and trendiest people tending to be on the left, and, and you'll always have that. You know, if you're in politics, you've got to show some courage. You've got to accept that you might be disliked or hated even. And I think that's, that's something that's kind of been lacking. And when it shows, and I, I think it really does show, when you kind of mark it out, you can just say, well, no, this is wrong and for this reason, I believe in it. I mean, I think the other tendency is the kind of the owning the libs thing is also this kind of downside where people sort of, firstly using kind of liberal premises to sort of basically make conservative points. The classic one is, oh, you know, we, we look at the EU, it's so white and so lacking diversity, you know, and the things like, well, so what? But that's not the reason you want to leave it, though, is it? So it's just kind of, it's like a silly argument to make you know there's also the sort of the risk the down to the iq lowering sort of factor in conservatism it becomes i mean it's definitely the case in the u.s it becomes a repository of all the people who are sort of excluded from polite society who tend to be a bit either grifters or quite stupid there is definitely like a danger of being sucked into that if you're a part of the commentary. that's the
2: i do feel like we've so far avoided the worst excesses like american political discourse is so ridiculous. But equally, I mean, I doubt you need much encouragement to be pessimistic about the state of British um, political discourse, but how close do you think we are to a US-style polarisation? Because if anything, like, the tribes seem to break down reform quite quickly here, whereas in America it seems really kind of down the middle, red versus blue.
3: I think, I mean, I'm in mixed feelings about that, because I do think Republicans and the American right generally at least do win battles that we don't. We sort of tend to begrudgingly accept it. I mean, I think, for example, you know, Christopher Rufo is an example. He's someone who, you know, he causes a lot of hostility in people. You know, he has aggressive tactics, but he's been very effective. There's no one like that here. Um, What he's combating in, in education, some of it really is very, like, very bad. It's very, very destructive, very... I wouldn't say harmful, it's very, it's just, it's kind of thing that shouldn't be taught to children, and he's just kind of taken them on in a kind of quite aggressive way, which I don't think any British person would. But, you know, I think sometimes we do need something like that. We don't have the size or the geographical polarisation necessary for that, because we're such a quite small urban society. I just think the smaller you are, the, the more you tend to get kind of conformity. Ireland's much more conformist than us, for example. Yeah, like the commentary, there's like one or two people, basically, who sort of reject to the sort of standard. I mean, that was the kind of good thing about COVID, at least you didn't really get that kind of divide. There was a bit of a divide, but it was very, very, it was very small. It wasn't like, in America, you know, there's like on one side, people refusing to take the vaccine, large numbers, and another, and you just occasionally see people, American academics, who are still like masking, sort of like Japanese soldiers in the, in the jungle in the 70s, like it's, like it's over. It's like, why are you still going about it?
2: Um, you mentioned Chris Rufo's and sort of aggressive tactics. On a broader point do you think that it's in conservatives interests to mirror the kind of tactics that progressives use to disparage them and sometimes misrepresent them i mean you mentioned some of it there where you you use kind of straw man fake arguments for things that you want there's another thing you mentioned in your book which i really like which is the phrase which is nut picking where you just so for example you just select jeremy corbyn or Aaron Bastani or someone like that as your go-to. I like Aaron
3: Bastani for say a
2: lot. He's, he's weirdly gone a bit more sensible in the last year or so. But you know what I mean? Like you pick the looniest person you can find and then use that as your kind of go-to person yeah. to argue
3: against. I mean, that's, that's a big sort of uh, yeah, talk radio thing, isn't it? You get someone, a very, very unintelligent person with quite racist views and say, oh, you, you know, I don't know. Do you think, what you're asking me whether people should or? Basically, is it politically profitable
2: to perhaps be seen as people who stand aside from the fray or is it that you're just going to keep taking hits if you don't get involved in the fight
3: as a sort of someone who wants to win as a politician or an activist then personally not me because i'm not really interested in that kind of i just want to write about the world and analyze it i suppose and um comment on it but i mean the problem is and even if we we sort of bring a knife to a gunfight here and that sort of the most social taboos are sort of controlled by the left, you know, and coming back to my thing of the left control thing, but you know, the social taboos which are most damaging are things like racism or homophobia or sexism. There is nothing, there is no kind of commie opinion that will get you in trouble in the same way. I mean, the closest thing, which some of the American right are using is the groomer thing, you know, basically claim that sort of sexual radicals are basically just paedophiles. Paedophilia is the only thing that's comparable to racism in terms of like career ending or, you know, I mean, obviously it's, it's worse, but. I mean, I wrote a piece saying, I, you know, I don't think, it's obviously no one, I don't think paedophilia is going to be the next social campaign. I think maybe this, people use it because it just works, and people always use what it works. I don't think there's any kind of lefty view which can, like, get you in trouble in the same way that saying something that, I mean, you know, even, like, members of the Communist Party, you know, was, you know, it's not. And I think that's fine, you know, the sort of the health advisor, whatever the name was, was, during the COVID, was a member of the Communist Party, and uh,
2: she was um, married to Jeremy Corbyn's former kind of right-hand man. Right.
3: I mean, I don't think that should that's merit getting in trouble. I mean, obviously, I'll take that into account if that's.
2: She's just one person in a massive kind of committee of scientists as well. So
3: there's a asymmetry about what is sort of unacceptable. So I don't think we can win that fight, even if we wanted to.
2: No, I suspect you're right. It's it's funny though. We're we're talking about, and we'll round off on this because we're on a slightly more positive note, which is that while we talk about. The very polemical world of like media and you know hot takes and all this actual top level politics right now is pretty like vanilla in terms of the attacks I mean we saw this with the the Labour attack ad on yeah. Rishi Sunak and how you know he doesn't want to sentence child sex offenders to my mind that was like totally I didn't think it was a great ad. It looked crap, but it, yeah. it was pretty unexceptional in the kind of theatre of, of British sure. politics. But the fact that that is seen, there was so much pearl clutching about it and so much, so many toys were thrown out of prams. In a weird way, I found it kind of encouraging. I was like, that's the bar. Do
3: you not then just social media though? If it wasn't for Twitter, people would just sort of
2: well, that's part of the strategy as well, is just to kind of get it shared and then everyone's talking about it.
3: I mean, I thought it was a pretty weak advert. I mean, I'm not very easily offended. But I mean, compared to attack adverts in the States, that's nothing.
2: Or even in the UK. I mean, we've had like comparable political adverts and kind of...
3: I mean, yeah, I suppose even like, the new Labour, new danger, demonised yeah, thing, I'm Now, going, like, that sort of like people got very upset about it. I think that's kind of... I mean, I assume they're just going to go for him because he's rich. That'll be the next thing. I mean, they realise that's probably a... They
2: tried that before. These, again, very weird kind of, I don't know if they're deliberately crap graphics that they're using. (laughs) Anyway, Ed, we could talk till the cows come home about this. And to all our listeners, if you don't subscribe to Ed's Substack, I thoroughly recommend it. Whatever your political views, actually, because it's very kind of considered, entertainingly written. And obviously, if you do subscribe, Ed would love it if you became a paid subscriber.
3: Thank you very much. That's the most important thing.
2: Yeah. And uh, if you're interested in the conference we were talking about earlier, that is on the 15th to the 17th of May here in Westminster. It's the NatCon UK, I think. And thank you all as ever for listening and do tune in next week for another episode of the CapEx Podcast.
0: better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. shopify.com slash work. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts
2: included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free